0: Hello, and welcome to PAST, the podcast about those who would never rule. I'm Veronica Fortune, and this week's episode is Lady Margaret Beaufort, Part 3. Before we start today, I just want to remind you all to get your questions in for the one-year anniversary slash end of the series question and answer episode. I'm really looking forward to getting those. Also, just so you know, that episode happens to fall on the week of my 40th birthday, So it'd be a great birthday present for me if I could get lots of questions. Thank you so much for that. Welcome back to part three of Lady Margaret Beaufort's story. The king is dead. Long live the king. And long live Margaret. At the end of the last episode, Edward IV had died. He was rather young, but he had two sons to succeed him. Over his reign, Margaret had ingratiated herself to the royal family. Her position seemed secure. Once the new king was crowned, there was always a chance that she would get to bring her son home. But this isn't a fairy tale, and her son would only come home with force. On to this week's episode. As mentioned, the king had two young sons, so by all accounts his line was secure, and his oldest son, now Edward V, could look forward to a long rule. Since I'll be covering what happens next in great detail during Elizabeth of York's episodes, I'm going to gloss over bits. I'm doing this mainly because Margaret had rather little to do with what happens now. Let me say that again. Lady Margaret Beaufort did not have a hand in the misplacing of the royal princes. While I won't go into extensive detail, I don't want to ignore the political happenings because they're rather crucial to the rest of her story. Her husband, though, does play a small part in what happens next. Following Edward IV's death, his oldest son, now Edward V, was called to England from Ludlow by his mother. He was escorted by his uncle, Anthony Woodville, Earl Rivers, and his older half-brother, Sir Richard Grey. Elizabeth Woodville, though, failed to inform her brother-in-law, Richard of Gloucester, of the king's death. Richard was instead informed by his companion, William Hastings, First Baron Hastings, who sent word that Richard should meet his nephew on their way to London. Richard caught up with the young king's party close to Stony Stratford on the 29th of April and was met by Earl Rivers and Sir Grey. The three men were cordial, and Rivers and Grey seemed to have suspected nothing. In the morning, they were locked into the inns they were staying at, and then taken to Pontefract Castle. At Richard's orders. Richard then met with his nephew and informed him that Rivers and Grey were evil counselors, yeah, we like that phrase, who had been plotting to kill Richard. The young king then allowed his uncle to escort him to London. Once back in London, council, which included Stanley, agreed that the prince should be held in the Tower. This was one of Edward IV's favorite residences and was well appointed. It was also secure. I know it sounds rather sinister now, but the tower was a royal residence at the time. While it had cells, it wasn't a prison. During Edward V and Richard's march south, Elizabeth Woodville, her two other sons, Thomas and the younger Richard, and her daughters sought sanctuary in Westminster Abbey. This was the family's second long-term visit. She would learn of the deaths of her second son and brother at Gloucester's Order while in the Abbey. Richard of Gloucester started making moves to have himself declared king. While Lord Hastings had assisted Richard, he wasn't willing to see the young king usurped. This would be his death. At a meeting of council at the Tower on the 13th of June, Lord Hastings was accused of planning the death of Richard, which was likely false. Stanley may have known this was going to happen and tried to warn Hastings, but this warning wouldn't help. Hastings was executed that day, in the tower, near its chapel. Stanley may have been injured during the fighting that occurred prior to Hastings' arrest, and he may have been briefly imprisoned, but he was released quickly. As I mentioned earlier, Stanley had children from his first marriage, including his oldest son, George, who was a talented soldier and military leader. Gloucester may have worried that George would come to his father's aid if Stanley was held for too long. After seeing that Richard of Gloucester meant business, Stanley declared for him. As you all know, Richard of Gloucester was able to convince his sister-in-law to turn over her younger son, the Younger Richard, who was even named after him and his father. The Younger Richard joined his brother in the Tower on the 6th of June. Sometime during the summer of 1483, the princes were, well, misplaced. There is a great debate as to what happened to them, and you'll have to wait a few more episodes to find out what I think. But I know Margaret had nothing to do with it. Richard of Gloucester had himself crowned as Richard III on the 6th of July, 1483. Margaret and Stanley were present at Richard's coronation. They both played important roles. Richard's legitimate son, Edward of Middleham, was created Prince of Wales in September. Now, I know I'm really glossing over this, but I will be covering it in much more detail in Elizabeth of York's episodes. Richard had his nephews and nieces declared illegitimate in January of 1484. In April that year, Richard's son, Edward, would die. He was either seven or ten. There was some bad record keeping. With Richard's rise, Margaret likely realized that England was not safe for her son. Richard had a single child, at least at the start, Edward of Middleham, who will not be getting his own episode, mainly because there is almost nothing written about him. And while Richard's sisters had plenty of children, there was still a risk from Henry Tudor. While Richard may not have been active in misplacing his nephews, he was active in executing their uncle and older half-brother, as well as his friends Hastings. This made his court a rather worrisome place for a woman with a claim on his throne, and more so for her son. Stanley was appointed Richard Stewart, which sounds like an insulting role, but was actually a rather prestigious appointment. Richard left London on the 22nd of July for his first royal progress. He was joined by Stanley, in addition to countless other people. Lady Margaret was left in London and may have become involved in the plot to release Edward V and Richard of York, his younger brother, from the Tower. The plot was a failure. The princes remained in the Tower to be misplaced. It doesn't appear that Richard III was made aware of Margaret's involvement. He did, though, increase the guard and confined the princes deeper into the Tower. Rumors began to spread that the princes had been killed. What's known? Is that there is no further record of them being cited after this point. At least, them being named as cited. It's a long story. With the misplacement of Edward IV's heirs and the unpopularity that this caused Richard III, Margaret may have realized her son could have the chance to come home to her, possibly as the king. Now, I don't subscribe to the idea that Margaret knew from a young age that her son would be king. He had a rather distant claim at best in his younger years. And even at this point, Richard III had his son, Edward, and four nephews through his older sister. This is not even counting his vast number of nieces through his two oldest sisters. There was no shortage of York heirs. But Margaret really wanted her son to return. There were also other heirs available. These were more distant than any York or pseudo-Lancastrian, but with valid claims. One was Elizabeth Woodville's brother-in-law and Margaret's former nephew-in-law slash cousin, Henry Stafford, 2nd Duke of Buckingham. Buckingham is often raised as a person responsible for the fates of Edward V and Richard of York. He was a great-great-grandson of Edward III through his youngest son, Thomas of Woodstock. He was also a great-grandson of John of Gaunt through Gaunt's youngest daughter, Joan Beaufort, and his son, John Beaufort. Yeah, everyone's related, and he's a bit extra related to himself. All of these claims were in junior lines, but he may have thought it wouldn't matter, or possibly he was just rather easy to influence. This next bit includes an amount of speculation, but remember, until this point, Buckingham had been a loyal supporter of Richard III. Buckingham had John Morton, the Bishop of Ely, in his custody. Morton had been a Lancastrian supporter, but had grown to be trusted by Edward IV. Richard III had him arrested not long after his power grab started. While in Buckingham's custody, it's possible Morton flattered the Duke into thinking the throne should be his. Like all oldest sons in his family, the Duke was a proud man, Really, it will cost his son his own head, and this little anecdote does not end well for Buckingham himself. Now, what does a scheming duke and a bishop have to do with Margaret? Well, Margaret's loyal servant for at least two decades, Reginald Bray, had made Morton's acquaintance, and with Buckingham's permission was brought to meet with the two men to act as an intermediary for Margaret. Speculation pretty much ends here. While Buckingham was being flattered and biding his time, Margaret was making contact with a second person who could help her bring her son home, Elizabeth Woodville. Though titled as the Widow of Grey, the Dowager Queen was still in sanctuary, which would not have been comfortable. She had likely been told that her sons were dead, and knew she needed to protect her daughters. While her marriage had been declared invalid, and her children bastards, she must have held out hope that a miracle would see her from this horrific change in fortune. Her doctor would act as an intermediary between herself and Margaret. Margaret's plan was simple. Elizabeth Woodville would contact her supporters, both Woodville and York, who didn't support Richard. And Margaret would contact her son and brother-in-law, along with enlisting her husband and his supporters. This group would rise up overthrow Richard III, at which point Henry Tudor... And Elizabeth of York, the oldest daughter of Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville, would marry. Elizabeth Woodville agreed enthusiastically, which to this humble history educator indicates just one thing she was certain her sons were dead, not just misplaced. One important note: Margaret's husband Stanley was with Richard on progress over this entire period. Talk about some plausible deniability. Do I think for a moment he was clueless? No. (laughs) Stanley was an on-the-ball man, and he appears to have known his wife well. I have no doubt he knew of her plans, in some way, and he figured out how to make sure they'd have an out if something went wrong. While Buckingham may not have been informed of the full nature of the plot, he agreed to it. Margaret's plan was for their combined forces to launch an uprising on the 18th of October, Anyone reading ahead will know that Buckingham's Rebellion, as this plot is known, actually started a bit earlier than that. Henry and Jasper Tudor were not ready to sail until the 2nd of October. While it can be a quick trip between Brittany and England, it can also be a long trip. This would theoretically be plenty of wiggle room to get there by the 18th, but they didn't have that long. Richard III became aware that Buckingham was plotting against him on the 11th of October. The Woodville faction, located in Kent, in the southeast of England, rose up too early, as early as the 8th. They were quickly suppressed. Buckingham, in Wales, couldn't cross the River Severn. This is a bit of a repeat of Jasper Tudor's attempt to reach Margaret of Anjou prior to Tewkesbury. Buckingham's army deserted, and the reward offered for his capture was enough for his tenants to hand him over to the king. He was beheaded on the 2nd of November. Henry and Jasper couldn't even set sail until the 18th. Remember how I said it could be difficult to cross? They almost landed near Dorset, but something seemed off and they turned back, which was lucky. Richard III discovered Margaret's involvement quickly. She was lucky, though. Treason is treason, and Richard could have executed her. But he needed her husband's support. And Stanley had been with the king the whole time. He had no idea what his villainous wife was planning. No, I don't think the couple conspired. But I think Stanley was prepared for this outcome. Margaret was instead placed under the care of her husband, under house arrest. She was stripped of her property, which was granted to her husband. The reason I think Stanley might have had more knowledge of the plot than he would ever let on, even though she was completely under his control, she was still able to get letters to her son. That wasn't going to happen without him knowing. While Margaret was being punished, her son was winning supporters. He was joined in Brittany by Elizabeth Woodville's oldest son, Thomas Grey, Marquess of Dorset, whom I'll call Dorset from here on, and his uncles, Richard, Lionel, and Edward. Margaret's half-brother, John Wales, and Bishop Morton all joined them as well. While the uprising had failed, it had given those disaffected with Richard III an outlet. They didn't need to replace the king they didn't like with his son or one of his nephews, and they could even get the beloved daughter of their late York king included in the deal. Henry Tudor also saw the value in marrying Elizabeth of York, and I will cover this more in her episode. In England, though, Henry and his uncle were attained. I wonder if there's a punch card for those, because this was Jasper Tudor's third time. This may actually be a record, I can't check though. In addition to Henry and Jasper, Elizabeth Woodville's oldest son, Dorset, Bishop Morton, and Margaret's half-brother, John Wells, were all attained. While this planning was going on, Henry and Jasper were betrayed by Francis of Brittany's senior servant, while Francis was incapacitated due to ill health. They were able to seek shelter in the french court louis the son charles the eighth was under the care of his regent his older sister anne of france i know i've mentioned in france women could never be queen regnant but that didn't stop them from ruling when needed anne was no exception to this her nickname was madame lagrande the great lady while the chroniclers of the time give young charles credit for supporting henry tudor it is without a doubt the king's sister and brother-in-law who are responsible for following through. Charles was only 13 at the time. Charles, at least in his name, granted Henry assistance in his plans to defeat Richard III. In England, Elizabeth Woodville and her daughters had been convinced to leave sanctuary, and her older daughters were brought to court. This is again a part I'll cover in more detail in her episode, so I'll just say, No, Elizabeth of York did not seem to have plans to marry her uncle. The Habsburgs called. They want their playbook back. It appears that Richard III was using his niece as a pawn to embarrass Henry Tudor, since he had promised to marry her. I'll share much more of my thoughts on this in her episode, so please don't worry, it is coming. Due to Richard's behavior, he was slowly losing supporters, who were either openly moving to Henry's cause or secretly giving support. Remember, his two-times great-uncle, Henry IV, had landed in England with a much smaller force on his path to take back his title and lands from Richard II, whom he, you know, ended up overthrowing. The whole time, Margaret was stuck under house arrest, but able to write to her son. Their plan was ambitious, and every time I get to this point, I start to wonder if it will work, I know this is silly, because history has already happened, but I always wonder if this time it's changed? It never has, of course. She was helped by someone who had managed to stay out of these machinations thus far. Her husband. Yes, Stanley had finally decided it was time to gamble on the stepson he had never met. Don't worry, he was planning on stacking the deck. I can only imagine Margaret's nerves knowing her son would be returning to England. On the 1st of August, 1485, Henry Tudor, his uncle Jasper, their supporters, and 3,000 French troops of questionable skill and legal position, left from Harfleur. They landed on the 7th in Wales, and were joined by Jasper's illegitimate half-brother, David Owen. They began to march east. Richard III became aware of their landing on the 11th. On the 15th, they were joined by Rhys ap Thomas and his 500 to 2,000 men? Someone was really bad at writing numbers. Rees's family had long been Lancastrian supporters, but he had submitted to Edward IV. During Buckingham's rebellion, he refused to join the pseudo Lancastrian cause, but now that Henry Tudor was in the country, he proudly lent his support. Rees had been requested to surrender his son to Richard III as surety on his appointment in Wales, but had declined, which was lucky for all involved. The larger combined force entered England on the 15th or 16th. Margaret's husband had left the capital, probably between the 1st and the 6th of August, before Henry's landing. He had been forced to leave his oldest son, George, as hostage. This meant he didn't openly declare for a stepson. Margaret was at one of Stanley's Lincolnshire properties. He joined her there. When Richard became aware of Henry's presence, he ordered Stanley to return but he was (coughs) sick, or at least that was his story. His son George did try to escape, but was stopped. George then let a cat out of the bag and told Richard that his uncle, William Stanley, and another noble were in league with Henry. He seemingly forgot to mention that his father was too, but keeping one's head is a good idea. It may have been an excellent plan on George and Stanley's part. By stating that William was on Henry's side, it wouldn't put Stanley under immediate suspicion if some of his men went to Henry's side, since they may have been supporting his brother. The Stanley brothers were wily. Stanley left Margaret on the 15th and began to march towards her son. He had obviously gotten over his cold quickly. He reached his stepson with 5,000 men on the 20th. He still hadn't openly declared for Henry. And his men were kept away from his meeting with Henry. They were joined by Stanley's brother, and it was clear whose side they were on. The three discussed their battle tactics and prepared for what was to come. While they were having a family reunion, Richard III was marching from Nottingham to Leicester to meet up with the Duke of Norfolk. Now, I'm confident everyone listening knows what happened next, but I'm actually going to cover this battle. So strap in, Oh, and there were no eyewitness accounts to the battle. All that follows is from the tellings of men who were there after the battle. Someone forgot to invite the chroniclers. The two forces met outside of Market Bosworth, a market town that really does look to have been in the literal middle of England. Richard had between 7,000 and 12,000 men to Henry's 5,000 to 8,000. Richard and his commanders held position on a low hill, to the northeast of Henry's position. Henry's leading commander wasn't himself, that would not have gone well, nor his uncle, who isn't mentioned in any sources. It was instead a noble I have failed to mention thus far, John de Vere, Earl of Oxford. De Vere had been a loyal Lancastrian, and who had fought against Edward IV. He escaped after the defeat of the Battle of Barnet. He was later attained and imprisoned before scaling a wall in a failed escape attempt in Calais. He had been ordered returned to England under Richard III, but had convinced the captain of the ship transporting him to defect to Henry Tudor's cause. Yeah, and he was a pirate, um, sorry, privateer. At the battle, Henry allowed de Vere to take point. Stanley was not on side for the start of the battle. Richard had actually sent him a message to join his side, or he'd kill George. In expected warrior fashion, Stanley replied he had other sons. Yes, I have no doubt the chroniclers were copying earlier members of their craft. Richard actually ordered George beheaded, but his guards suggested they wait until the end of battle. Stanley did delay declaring for Henry, still, but he would fight for his stepson in the end. De Vere chose an unorthodox formation keeping his men together in a single battle and not three separate battles that would be the vanguard center and rear guards. Men were to stay within three meters of their banner, the flag that symbolizes the feudal lord they were fighting under. De Vere's formations were a well-planned strategy. It prevented any single group of Henry's army from being surrounded by Richard's troops. Oh, and Richard had cannons. I know it sounds scary, but artillery in this period was still a hit-or-miss tool, especially in open battle. Besieging castles is a completely different story. 25 years earlier, Margaret's cousin, James II of Scotland, had died when a cannon he was standing next to during a demonstration exploded. They really were a hit-or-miss item. Richard III may have had the advantage of numbers on his side, but he may have had a traitor in his ranks. Henry Percy, the fourth Earl of Northumberland, was in his reserve, but never brought his men to battle. If you remember all the way back, the Percys were wavering Lancastrians at the best of times, and had fought against Edward IV at Towton. This Percy, though, was a cousin of Richard III. However, it appears he wasn't running to his cousin's defense. While Richard was being ignored by Percy, he saw that Henry was separated and behind the main force of his men. Richard and his personal knights or household, who could have ranged from a few dozen to a thousand, rode towards Henry. Richard was able to kill Henry's standard bear and injure his own brother's former standard bear. Now, I joked about how bad it would be if Henry led the charge earlier, but this is actually the truth. He was not a soldier. In his defense, he really hadn't had many chances. He was a perfectly skilled swordsman, but a practice fight is not the same as a battle. Seeing Richard's charge, Henry dismounted and put himself in the middle of his French mercenary forces. I honestly don't blame him for this. If he dies, the battle is over, and those fighting for him are likely dead too. His bodyguard did an excellent job of protecting him. At this moment, his step-uncle launched his attack. William Stanley joined battle, and pushed Richard and his guard back from Henry. Richard's men were picked off around him, until he was fighting on his own. He was likely killed by Rhys Thomas. Exhumation of his body showed 11 wounds, including 9 head wounds. I'll give Richard one thing. He was not a coward, and he knew how to fight. With Richard's death, his supporters surrendered or fled. Norfolk was killed in single combat on the field, and Henry Percy fled north despite having not fought. Well, Henry Tudor, now declared on the battlefield, Henry VII, could claim the throne through descent, He didn't. And this is important for our next subject, his wife. He claimed it through the same means his nine times great-grandfather, William the Bastard had, conquest. This was brilliant politically, but it will sometimes make his life difficult. Margaret diligently recorded her son's victory in her Book of Hours. Quote, This day, King Henry VII won the field. Where was slain King Richard III? End quote. Henry actually sent his mother Richard III's Book of Hours. Margaret erased the previous king's name and added her own. If you're curious, I'll make a This Too Shall Past explaining a Book of Hours soon. Now that England had been won, Margaret would need to help her son rule. This was not going to be an easy task. While Henry had many supporters, there were still plenty of Yorkists left in England, and more overseas. Margaret would not see her son until early September, but her joy would have been overwhelming. The pair and their supporters arrived in London to be greeted by Anne Herbert, the widow of Henry's former guardian. They were also met by Elizabeth of York, and Edward Plantagenet, Earl of Warwick, the son of George of Clarence. The young Edward was only ten, and was given to Margaret for both his protection and Henry's. Elizabeth and her mother, Elizabeth, would move into Margaret's residence not long after their arrival. This was to begin the planning for her wedding to Henry Tudor, and to protect her from becoming a rallying point for Yorkist rebels. Margaret moved into a luxurious residence. She looked after her devoted supporter and servant Bray. He was given fancy new windows in his quarters, even. Margaret was also joined by Elizabeth's sisters and possibly her cousin, Margaret Plantagenet. She had spent a great deal of time while she was in court around this group of girls and was, by all accounts, fond of them. Elizabeth of York's sister, Cecily, would be the closest to Margaret. Henry Tudor was crowned on the 30th of October, 1485. His uncle Jasper, newly ennobled as the Duke of Bedford, carried the king's crown. It was placed on his head by Thomas Boucher. Yes, he's still around. Henry is in fact the third and last king he'll crown. Margaret is recorded as having wept at his crowning. I can only imagine these were tears of joy and relief. Her son was safe and home they would never have to spend 15 years apart again. Margaret's title after her son's victory was My Lady, the King's Mother. A person would address her as this first at each occasion of meeting her, before addressing her as My Lady subsequently. Henry had his mother's lands restored to her, and her house arrest was rescinded. She was declared femme sole, which means she was not under the coverture or hold of her husband. While she and Stanley were still married, He didn't have the customary power a husband would normally have over his wife. She was legally an independent woman. They were no longer legally one person, but two separate people who happened to be married. To most of us, this sounds rather normal, but it was not the case in this time. Interestingly, Stanley didn't seem bothered by his wife's independent status, and they continued to work together as a couple. He even had her arms added to his windows with the words Our Lady, the King's mother, inscribed. After her son's crowning, Henry started rewarding supporters. This is obviously important after such a huge change in government. Even today, governments do this, just without the battle. At least, hopefully. Many of these supporters were Margaret's men. Bishop Morton was named Chancellor. He would eventually become the Archbishop of Canterbury. Reginald Bray was given substantial financial rewards, in addition to his fancy windows. Elizabeth Woodville's doctor, who had helped Margaret arrange the planned marriage between Henry and Elizabeth of York, was made Margaret's own physician. William Stanley, his step-uncle, was made the king's chamberlain. And finally, Henry Stanley, Margaret's husband, was made constable of England, the chief steward of the Duchy of Lancaster. These were lucrative positions. At Parliament on the 7th of November, the act that had declared the children of Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville illegitimate was repealed, and all copies were ordered destroyed. Yes, someone missed a few. We do know what this document said. Parliament also reconfirmed the act passed by Richard II, confirming the legitimacy of John of Gaunt's Beaufort children. While Henry VII wasn't claiming the throne through dissent, he didn't want that stain on his legacy. After Henry was done telling Parliament what he wanted done, they told him what they needed. Him to marry Elizabeth of York. Parliament wasn't being silly with this. They had good reason. First, Henry had sworn an oath to do so. It's not a good look for a king to go back on those. Second, he needed children. It is one of the more important jobs for a medieval monarch. You know, those children. And finally, it would secure his throne. While his claim was through conquest, anyone with any awareness knew this claim needed support, and Elizabeth of York provided it. Papal dispensation was received on the 16th of January, 1486, and the couple married on the 18th. Voucher presided. It would be his last major state activity. He died on the 30th of May that year, at the age of 82. The marriage was recorded in Margaret's Book of Hours This day, Harry VII wedded the Queen Elizabeth, end quote. Margaret and her daughter-in-law appeared to get along well. They were both pious and charitable. While some have portrayed them as not getting along, it's based on a single statement made in 1498 by a Spanish ambassador. Having read through one of Elizabeth of York's biographies before even reading Margaret's, I'm going to have to say this is untrue. They apparently shared inside jokes and had a similar sense of humor. They also both wanted Henry's marriage to succeed. I sometimes think he may have been the last to know about his marital plans. Again, I'll cover this in the upcoming episodes. But I can imagine the only matter of contention would have been that Margaret's quarters were next to Henry's. Since Henry and Elizabeth had seven children together, I don't think it bothered them too much. I think it's really important to express how close Margaret, Henry, and Elizabeth actually were. For the early part of Henry's reign, they were almost a small team running the country. Margaret would eventually spend less time at court as she aged and as Henry confirmed his control of the kingdom. But in the beginning, all three of them needed each other. Maybe by 1498, Elizabeth didn't want Margaret around as much as before, but that's likely a rumor with no support. In the spring of 1486, Henry went on his first progress. He left Margaret and Elizabeth in London, A small rebellion fizzled out quickly, with only one rebel being executed, but one managed to escape, Francis Lovell. Remember his name. Margaret would become a grandmother on the 19th of September, 1486, when Elizabeth gave birth to her first child, Arthur, in Winchester. Yes, those who are good at math will have noticed that this is not nine months is in fact 8 months and 2 days, or, in the way pregnancies are normally calculated, 35 weeks. Unlike Elizabeth's father, this oddity wouldn't cause rumours of infidelity, because the couple had been in close proximity prior to their wedding. There are two options. Either Arthur was early and had been conceived on his parents' wedding night, which, based on Elizabeth's paternal grandmother and mother, might have been a possibility or the couple didn't wait until they were married to begin sexual relations. In the long run, it doesn't matter. Arthur was born after his parents' wedding, and therefore legitimate. Plus, no one doubted his paternity. Oddly, Margaret didn't attend Arthur's christening. A note for those interested in the lives of women. Years after Arthur's birth, Margaret would actually lay down the proper process for royal confinements and birth practices. This included the length of confinement, The time before a woman gave birth, the timing of a churching when a woman returned to society, and other parts of the birth process. 1487 would be the most eventful year for the royal family since Bosworth. The year prior, Lambert Siminal came to the attention of a few remaining Yorkists, including Francis Lovell and John de la Pole, the son of Margaret's first husband, yes, the one she had been married to while they were very young children. De La Pole's involvement wasn't known immediately. He had actually been at Arthur's christening. These rebels were claiming that Lambert was Edward Plantagenet, the Earl of Warwick. This was factually not true. Edward was in the Tower. Henry let the young man out and have him paraded through the streets to assure the crowds that the young man, now in Ireland, was not in fact George of Clarence's only surviving son. At the same time, De La Pole fled to Flanders. His father, Margaret's first husband, though, stayed loyal to Henry. Now, de la Pole was the senior York claimant from a sister of Edward IV and Richard III. He was welcomed into the court of his aunt, Margaret of York, Duchess of Burgundy, the widow of Charles the Bold. De la Pole, Seminole, and their forces landed in England on the 4th of June, 1487. They were met by Henry, his stepfather, de Vere, and Suffolk, de la Pole's father along with their forces on the 16th of June at the Battle of Stoke Field. Henry's side was victorious, and this was the last battle of the Wars of the Roses. While Henry was fighting, Margaret and Elizabeth were guarded for their safety in Kenilworth Castle. De La Pole was killed in action. Simnel was captured. And Lovell, well, he escaped and may have run for Scotland, but there's no record of him after his last sighting at this battle. He just disappeared. While this was the last battle of the Wars of the Roses, it was Henry's first as king, and he had proven himself. He was cheered in the streets on his return to London. Oh, and young Simnel, who was only about ten, was taken back to London with the king and given position in the royal household. He would live to almost sixty, and appears to have remained in the employ of the king for most of his life. He was fully pardoned, being the most innocent puppet. Now, I know there's another pretender uprising in Henry's reign, but I'm not going to get into it in Margaret's episode because I think it's more fitting to share in Elizabeth of York's episodes. I hope you will all forgive me. With that, I'll be ending the episode for this week. I hope you'll join me for the conclusion of Margaret's story next week. Thank you for listening to Past. I can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Pastpod. That's P-A-S-S-E-D-P-O-D please feel free to email me at pastpod at gmail.com. I have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com forward slash pastpod. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.